Hello and welcome back to the Free to Brew show. I, of course, am your host, Greg Pulsher. And uh, thank you for tuning back in at a bit of a, I guess, a month-long um, hiatus. Uh, we were having a huge conference here in North Carolina, and it was sort of all hands on deck for that. Uh, but the good news was we did have a lot of beer that was at the at the conference. In particular, uh, it was sponsored by Old Mecklenburg, Noda Brewery, as well as Red Oak Brewery here in North Carolina. And we have mentioned them and had a few of them on the show already uh, to talk about the issues that they've been having with the self-distribution cap here in North Carolina that's restricting their freedom to uh, create value and trade voluntarily uh, with customers out there. But uh, today we have something different on the show as uh, instead of the uh, three-tiered system. Uh, today we are going to be talking about federalism and really how um, beer plays has played a role in that into where we are today um, uh, with what is acceptable under uh, the federal government or, or the government to do to states. And to talk about this, uh, I have on Jake Curtis. Uh, Jake is an associate counsel and federalism litigator at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty Center for Competitive Federalism. Uh, he is a frequent contributor to Right Wisconsin and has been featured in National Re the Review, uh, The Federalist, and The Hill. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce Jake. Jake, thank you so much for joining the show. Greg, thanks for, thanks for having me on. And uh, right off the bat, I'm going to um, sort of put you right on the spot and uh, ask you, are you an NFL fan? Am I an NFL fan? Um, absolutely. Okay. Well, I, I should put it this way, Greg. I, I am a Packer fan, um, so I follow the NFL, um, but I uh, grew up watching the Packers, absolutely. Oh, well, I guess uh, to start off, my first question was really going to be, um, Are do you A, think the Packers are a horrible team, or B, think they're the worst team in the NFL? Greg, they're they're America's team. How, how's that? <laughs> well, uh, I, I I guess I didn't in, I didn't preface this at the beginning. Uh, I am from Minnesota originally, and and uh, well, now it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess we're gonna have to. We may agree with a lot of stuff on this, but I think we're gonna have to disagree on football in this case. I think we will, particularly <laughs> after you. Uh, uh, finagled your way into our Hall of Fame quarterback for a few years. Yeah, that uh, that was an interesting, interesting couple of years. Uh, I really have no other way to put that. It was very odd for us to cheer for Favre out there, um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. but beyond that, uh, let's get away from the uh, from from or from all the issues that could pop up with sports, and and let's get down to politics. Should shall or, or shall we? Absolutely. <laughs> well, get, Jake, I wanted to have you on the show uh, to talk about your recent article in National Re or, or Review, and that's uh, titled 30 Years of Federalism or, or Federal Coercion on the Drinking Age and More. Um, right off the bat, thinking about the drinking age and people that I've spoken with uh, before we really get into the article is a lot of people just think that 
the drinking age was 18 for a long time. And then suddenly the feds just said, hey, we want it to be 21. And that was that. Uh, but as far as the history of the drinking age goes, can you fill us in on what was really at play in this change? Sure. Well, first of all, Greg, um, wanted to note that uh, we are familiar with your work and you you do a tremendous job focusing on obviously a fun topic, uh, beer and 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 beverages that many of us like to consume. Um, but you know, we, we think you do a really good job exposing um, the problems with uh, protectionism, and, that, and that's really correct me if I'm wrong. But I think you would agree that that ultimately is the problem when you look at kind of three tier systems and and these, these regulations. Um, for example, here in Wisconsin right now is a debate over how long wineries can be open because right now it's 9 o'clock. Um, there's legislation that would extend that to midnight. And you know, we would take the position that um, you know, if, if a winery wants to stay open till 2 o'clock, which is when we close our bars here in Wisconsin, that they should be able to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not even really getting to the heart of the matter of the three three-tier uh, system in general. Um, so, so first, I wanted to note we, we really appreciate your work because it's fun, but it really does get to important issues like protectionism and whether or not state governments, federal governments really need to be involved in regulating an industry um, like, like beer or, or wine or, or spirits. Um, and and so, so to answer your question directly, um, yeah, most people probably have a somewhat simplistic view on, on the drinking age. And, you know, that's understandable. People, people lead lives and the law is what it is and, and they abide by it. And right now the reality is nationwide we have a 21-year-old drinking uh, limit. And, and, you know, it, it wasn't always that way. And as you pointed out, um, there is kind of an interesting history. Um, it, it really originally was a situation where it was state by state. And many of us would argue that's how it should be, that individual states should have the, you know, the, the freedom and the flexibility to determine when they think uh, it's appropriate for individuals to be able to legally enjoy a beverage. Uh, some states it might be 18, some states it might be 19, others might be 21. And, and so the history of it is interesting. We had um, you know, it, yeah, it's messy, but um, uh, many, many systems in a, in a republic like ours, a federal republic, um, can, can be messy. But again, we would argue that that should be reserved to the states. And so what we had um, in the early 80s was a system where states like South Dakota had a, a kind of a unique um, way to approach it. They basically said, look, our 19-year-olds can um, have the enjoy the freedom to have beer that's 3.2% or less um, percent alcohol content uh, a beer. And, and really, that, that worked well for them. Um, and it, um, really, to, to the disappointment probably of conservatives, it was President Reagan that ultimately changed his position. And I'm sure you'll want to get into the details here, but basically the federal government decided um, in 1984 that um, the, the Drinking age should be 21 nationwide, and ultimately that, that led to some litigation because South Dakota stood up and, and, and wanted to defend their, their prerogatives. 
And uh, so by defending their idea of what they wanted their drinking age to be at, uh, I guess, why were they defending it in the first place? Like what, like, um, with my scenario of people just thinking that, um, the, or the feds just said, nope, it's going to be 21 and here's what it's, and, and here all the states are going to follow suit. Uh, granted, South Dakota challenged it, uh, but what was the mechanism that the feds were trying to get all the states to abide by this, by, by this new age limit? Right. It's a, it's a good question, an important question, because, um, is a little bit of hyperbole I was using. The, despite the growth of the federal government, even in the 1980s and certainly today, they, they still can't actually dictate policy. Um, although with some actions taken during uh, the Obama administrations, that, that's not even really a clear point. But um, the actual mechanism was really a coercive mechanism. And so what I mean by that is you had legislation passed in 1984, signed into law by President Reagan, that essentially directed the Secretary of the Department of Transportation to withhold federal transportation dollars from states that didn't increase their drinking age limit to 21. So in other words, on paper, states still had the flexibility to have a drinking age lower than 21. But in so doing, that state or those states would lose federal transportation dollars. Um, and so we focus on measures like this, and we, have, we and others have called and identified them as kind of course of measures implemented by the federal government. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a choice on paper, but it's not really a choice. If you're a state and you rely on those dollars for transportation purposes, you're going to abide by, um, by that drinking age limit of 21. And so over the course of the, the three years following um, passage of the legislation, so 1984 to 1987, South Dakota stood up and, and challenged the, the measure as unconstitu unconstitutionally coercive of states. Um, three years later, 1987, the Supreme Court actually issued a decision in South Dakota versus Dole, Dole being the Secretary of, of Transportation, and, and it, it was an unfortunate decision. Um, so conservatives were disappointed President Reagan, um, and unfortunately, three years later, they were conservative, uh, conser um, disappointed in a conservative Supreme Court because actually it was a 7-2 decision um, authored by otherwise um, conservative Chief Justice William Rehnquist. Uh, he was joined in the decision by Justice Scalia, and um, the, the decision basically focused on this choice. Um, we would argue that it really isn't, wasn't much of a choice, but basically the position of the court was that so long as states have the flexibility to say no and deny the money, um, it's not actually unconstitutionally coercive. Now, I, I really do want to focus a predominant amount of our time based on how, how, uh, how, how, how this drinking age is affecting federalism. Uh, but first off, I wanted to get your take on, uh, in your article, you had put down President Reagan's quote in here, which um, to a lot, I think, would find it very um, odd that he would say, some, or, or, some, or say, say something like, like this that I'm going to um, bring up here. Um, it uh, says, he, or, and, and I quote, Some may feel that my decisions is at odds with my philosophical viewpoint that state prob or the problems should involve state solutions. And it isn't up to a big and overwhelming government in Washington to tell the states what to do. 
And you're partly right. In a case like this, where the problem is so clear cut and the benefits are so clear cut, then I have no misgivings about a judicious use of federal inducements to encourage the states to get moving, raise the drinking age, and save precious lives. Um, personally, I think Reagan was a great leader at the time and had some great goals and vision uh, for the country. But at this point, um, looking back, I think it's wrong to idolize this man, as many do, because we sort of lose sight of some of the misgivings then of a president that could have and don't critique them for where they're wrong. Um, in this case, with what Reagan was talking about in this, basically, is he trying to just say, like, I'm all for fed, all for fed, for fed, for federal, federalism, I'm all for liberty, but except when I have an issue with it? I, I, you know, I, I think a couple points. Number one, um, obviously a, a great transformational president. Most conservatives, um, those that are on that side of the aisle, we would, we would agree that, that he was a transformational president, did a lot of great things for the country. I, I would just point out, look, and this, you know, the, it's why organizations like Will and commentators like yourself are important because – I think it's possible to say somebody was a great transformational leader, but still point out that they're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. No, no politician is going to get it right every time. Um, and so it's, it's, it's certainly possible to say that overall somebody's record was a, a good one for advancing liberty and freedom. Um, but then, frankly, it's more important. It's, it's even more important then when they kind of fall short of that goal that we be willing to stand up and, and kind of point that out. And it, you you read the quote, and it, there's a reason I pulled it, because it, it does really stand out. Um, when you look at his statement at the time of, of passage in 1984, it, it's an odd statement, um, because it does, and he basically, as you read, he basically admits that one is partly right if they, at the time, were somewhat confused by the position he was taking, because it really was inconsistent with a view of a competitive federalism that our constitution requires and our founders envisioned. And in particular, that last line is, is kind of a head scratcher in the sense that he's saying, well, if a problem is so clear cut and the benefits are so clear cut, then I have no problem you, uh, using a judicious use of federal inducements. Well, that kind of that's the whole problem, right? There, there might be really significant problems in our federal system. Uh, and certainly individuals abusing alcohol and you know, leading to potentially road fatalities, that would be a big problem. But, but the problem is in a federal system, no matter how big an issue or how big a policy debate is, there are still going to be powers reserved to the federal government, or I should say enumerated to the, in the, for the federal government in Article 1, Section 8. And in those situations, you know, entering treaties with foreign governments, obviously national defense, those are issues reserved to the federal government. However, if they're not reserved to the federal government, or enumerated for the federal government, or prohibited from the states, then those powers under the Tenth Amendment are reserved to the states. And so this would be a situation where as big of an issue as it was at the time, and frankly probably still is, um, it's not the role of the federal government to be dictating policy on when individuals can drink beer 
Um, that's not the role of the federal government to dictate that policy to the states. And so I guess the quote really stood out to me because it really, again, Reagan wasn't perfect, and he clearly missed the point on this. Nobody was arguing that it wasn't a big issue at the time. Certainly it was a very important policy debate, but it simply wasn't a power that the federal government had. And knowing that they couldn't directly dictate that to the states, they used a course of measure. And you know, we would have argued at the time that it was unconstitutional, and we think course of measures that are used today remain unconstitutional. And, uh, and, and with that, like, as I've gone on with this show, I've realized that a lot of these instances where a politician or someone will come out and just say, it's so clear cut, there is obviously so much good in this bill or law that we obviously just have to pass it or force everyone to follow suit. Uh, typically, from what I found in that is there's two things that come up is one, if it's so clear cut, uh, there really shouldn't be a law to begin with. It should, it, should, it should be so obvious that it's a bad issue for people to partake in that there really needs to be no law there to say otherwise. Uh, and two, I mean, if it, w w with these issues, when someone comes out and says it's so clear cut, I found that on both sides, a lot of times, the advocates of both will come out and just say nothing but the bad things that are going on. Or the others will say nothing but the good things that are going on. But in reality, there are negatives and there are positives with a lot of these issues. And to come out just say that it's so clear cut, you're missing a lot of, I guess, not necessarily opportunity. Yeah, I guess opportunity cost or the unseen of, sure, you passed this bill, but what are the issues that are going to come up because of this? or because of this Supreme Court case. And I'd like to get into, at this point, really, what were the um, unintended consequen con this consequences of this rule, or this bill first, but then this ruling by the Supreme Court? Sure. Well, I think just from a general standpoint, the, the problem has been um, we, we previously, and I, and I go through some of this analysis in the article, but we previously had case law um, that, that made pretty clear that there were limits on um, the way in which um, um, the federal government could influence states. So the case I cite in the article is a 1936 case, U.S. v. Butler. Um, and, and it was really a warning. Uh, in 1936, the court, you know, laid out a very clear warning that coercive measures are very dangerous to our federal system. Um, and I'll just read the quote here that constitutional guarantees so carefully safeguarded against direct assault are still open to destruction by the indirect but no less effective process of requiring a surrender, which, though in form voluntary, in fact lacks none of the elements of compulsion. In other words, I think the court was saying at that point that there are constitutional guarantees um, that, that really focus on direct assaults. So, again, to pull this back into our conversation regarding beer, you know, the federal government knew that both under the Constitution and under case law, it couldn't just direct a, a drinking age of 21 without the states really, um, probably more states than just South Dakota, um, putting up significant resistance. But... They, they, they then you know, decided that, well, we can do so uh, through kind of some compulsion. We know, we, the federal government, know all the states love federal transportation dollars. So what we can do is we can essentially attach a condition. 
Uh, and this is something else that we, we talk about in the article, and I guess to answer your question, just this problem that's really um, really taken on a life of its own since 1987, but frankly had kind of been percolating before that, and that is um, conditional grants. And that, that's ultimately, you know, if anything people should walk away from, you know, from our discussion with is this idea that, that federal conditional grants, whether it's in transportation or, you know, drinking age, um, oftentimes you see this in education. Really every policy area has this problem where the federal government um, realizes that states are going to want federal grants and they seek the grants, and when they obtain them, they need to realize that many times when they get these grants, there are conditions attached to the grants. And from a legal standpoint, the most important point is, while the federal government can have conditions on a grant related to what the money is intended to be spent for, they have no authority to attach conditions that are completely unrelated. Um, and so, for example, um, while we would warn states when they're seeking transportation dollars to think about, you know, any conditions that might be attached related to transportation or, you know, infrastructure improvement. In the case of South Dakota versus Dole, kind of one of the problems was you had a, uh, a coercive condition attached to these dollars that, while somewhat related, really had no actual relation to building of roads. It had to do with, you know, who, who was consuming al alcohol and maybe two steps down the line, um, having some sort of incident on a road. But if that's the standard, and this is, I guess, directly to answer the question, the problem is really the, the take-home point from South Dakota versus Dole is that really the standard was that the federal government could attach almost any condition to a federal grant. I mean, if the logic was, well, somebody's going to drink, might get into a car, might get into an accident on a highway that was partially funded by the federal government, well, that logic could be used to attach almost any condition to any federal dollar. And as we've seen really over the past three, four decades, the federal government has essentially used that discretion. Um, when you look at some of these examples of, of you know, education dollars, you know, the extent to which federal education dollars can impact state budgets is almost limitless. And so, again, the, the, to answer the question, the, the consequence has been almost the ability of the federal government to impact the state budget in a just endless number of scenarios. And I love how you brought that up because this is literally uh, how I've been able to get away with some of my shows is that I, too have a commerce clause. And that commerce clause is, is I have to talk about alcohol or beer. And they didn't specify exactly how I talk about beer and alcohol. It's just that I have to somehow attribute it or correlate it in some way, shape, or form to alcohol. And so the... I, I like that. It's a good analogy. Exactly. And, 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 I, and that was my goal in bringing that up on the show a lot of times is to show if you're just trying to do like one step away, two steps away, three steps away, the arguments can be ridiculous. But when you're dealing with the law, the law too is ridiculous. And they will stop at nothing to figure out how they can attach a law or a stipulation onto a bill. And that brings up what... Um, I believe you put, let's see here. Yeah, it was the dissenting opinion, I believed, about, um, uh, oh, no, it wasn't the dissenting. is how they justified uh, this voluntary compulsion. Uh, that is, um, 
there could be, uh, or the point at which pressure turns into compulsion, uh, which meant that when they were ruling on this in seven to two, in the opinion, they were like, well, you can do this, but you can't do it to the extent of compulsion, which meant there is a certain number attached to this in which they would have said, oh yeah, you're involuntarily making these states abide by this. But because the number that they were talking about was so low, they said, oh, that's fine. It doesn't matter. Just go go on. We're talking about pennies. Uh, so how did, like, is that having a unique, I guess, um, it or an issue now with how other cases are being looked at because of this cl- or this statement in the opinion? Well, so so the interesting thing is is you you focused on the important line in the majority opinion from from Dole in 1987, and and this is this concept of the point at which pressure turns into compulsion. And the obvious follow up question is well. Where the heck is that line, <laughs> and how are future courts really and, and, and states really supposed to interpret that? And, and so I guess two points. Number one, the concern um, was highlighted um, in the dissent by Justice O'Connor. Um, and, and I'll just read it. It's a one line, but it's a very important one, that she explained, if the spending power is to be limited only by Congress's notion of the general welfare, the reality given the vast financial resources of the federal government, is that the spending clause gives power to, con- to the Congress to tear down the barriers, to invade the state's jurisdiction, and to become a parliament of the whole people, subject to no restrictions save such are self-imposed. Pretty powerful dissent there from uh, Justice O'Connor, uh, basically you know, pointing out the absurdity of this, this position that with the financial resources of the federal government and the ability to really influence states, that this, to use, again, the majority line, that this point at which pressure turns into compulsion is almost limitless. In other words, that the federal government will always have the ability with its vast financial resources to really use compulsion to influence states to essentially do its bidding. And as she alluded to, I mean, I don't think it's really an alarmist line when she notes that you're essentially turning Congress into kind of a, a nationwide parliament that has no juris- state jurisdictions. It essentially can dictate policy to states however it, it sees fit. So let's fast forward, and this is the other point in the article, to 2012. Um, and, and a case, and again, a, a case that, that conservatives didn't have much to cheer about, but uh, but there is a silver lining. And, and, and conservative commentators have, have noted this as far as a limitation on the Commerce Clause, and that's NFI versus, NFIB versus Sebelius, the Obamacare case. Um, and in that case, Justice Roberts, ultimately upholding Obamacare to the chagrin of conservatives, he did include this nugget that, that um, any sort of compulsion like was used in Obamacare and, frankly, was used in, in South Dakota versus Dole, that it can't be a gun to the head of the state's that there's going to be a point at which it turns, it kind of surpasses this just relatively mild encouragement was the language he uses, and is instead a gun to the head. Um, where that line is, is, is remains the difficult question because if you look at back at South Dakota versus Dole, five uh, percent of transportation funding that was really the funding at issue in that case. So, well, let's just say for the sake of argument that a state budget is ten percent. 
uh, 10% of a state budget is transportation dollars. Well, you're talking 5% of 10%. Relatively speaking, a small amount. We would argue that still is is unconstitutionally coercive. Um, but in 2012, um, with with the Obamacare case, Justice Roberts is looking at these numbers and you know, realizes, again, compared to South Dakota versus Dole, that that you have in some cases 20 percent, 20 percent of the entire state budget um, in in some states was at risk if they didn't abide by the terms of Obamacare. Um, employ you know, the, the, the insurance markets that the federal government was dictating, that they stood to essentially lose a fifth of state revenue. Um, and, and, and Robert's point was that, that simply that was a gun to the head of the states. That was, that was simply too much. Um, and, and we would take the position that, you know, looking at these two cases, that this it, it admittedly is a very difficult task to draw that line. And so, frankly, we would take the position the federal government should not be in the business at all, whether it's 5% of a subset of a state budget or 20% of an entire state budget. The federal government should should not be attaching conditions to federal grants that are unassociated with the actual um, purpose of the policy, purpose of the program. Um, they, they just need to get out of that business. If, if there's going to be a grant to a state um, let the state decide how that be spent within the policy area, but don't attach uh, kind of an unrelated condition. Don't set state policy. And, uh, I mean, with this decision, um, a lot of people, I guess, have argued or have looked at stuff like this and have set, or like people that would claim that they're pragmatic or utilitarian, just determine what the law is good for the general welfare of everybody. Uh, but they would look at it and say, well, this is just, uh, well, they could have gotten out of it at any point. It's voluntary. They don't need to take these funds. So they willingly want to change the age. And another th- line that you put in here was some have argued it's cooperative federalism. Uh, how would you talk to someone uh, who brings up those types of points uh, when discussing an issue like this? Sure. Well, with respect to the first point, I, again, there's, there's, there, the, the two cases are very relevant, and the two cases are in, interesting to kind of juxtapose, because while five percent of a sub pro, you know subset of a program might be something sure that a state it would be tough, but they could probably absorb it, and so they still have the flexibility to avoid that mandatory drinking age. The point of Roberts was opinion was that you get to the point where it's not really a choice. Um, it's not realistic for a state to say that we we have this obligation to provide um, uh, Medicaid and 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 that basically eats up a fifth of our budget. It's not really it's a it's 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 a fallacy to say that a state has a choice to simply absorb uh, one fifth loss in revenue. And so that's where he comes up with this language of a gun to the head. I mean, you know, if you have a gun to the head, you really do you really have a choice? No, if somebody's making that demand with a gun to your head, you're gonna you're gonna do what they want you to do. And, and so I guess that's that's why he used the example he did. It, it might be kind of a harsh one, but it, it, I think it encapsulates what the debate is. Um, and so that that's kind of an answer to question number one. Um, but but the the reality is, you know, these issues they they, they come up a lot, and and states they they need to take into consideration these conditions that come attached. 
to, to the grants. We've talked about things like what states could do as far as um, truly offering transparency in their budget process so that when they look at the receipt of federal grants, that they can actually identify the conditions that are attached to those grants and then make an informed decision. Um, and, you know, so there are things states could do. Um, and, and, but it's a difficult, it's a difficult situation because, uh, as we all know, the reality is we all, we individuals, states, corporations, and states send dollars to the federal government via, um, you know, income tax, um, both, both corporate and, and personal, and the, the, they get processed in D.C. and then they get sent back with conditions. Um, so, so states need to take an active role in identifying these conditions and then making informed uh, decisions. And can you expand on that a little bit? Because I, uh, that's a very good point to make is, uh, the, or, the, or these federal funds, um, I guess, I mean, there are states that take in more money uh, than they actually pay in federal funds. But um, overall, where are these federal funds coming from in the state? Well, again, you know, everybody that's listening, they, they know, you, uh, well, I guess in your unless you're in a state that, that thankfully does not have a state income tax, you, you pay state income taxes, you pay federal income taxes. Um, if, you're, if you're a small business, if you're a corporation, um, there are federal income taxes. Um, and some of the most, in some cases, the most uncompetitive federal income tax, um, you know, corporate income tax rates in the world. Um, and so every year we all send our tax dollars to D.C., um, and, and we have lots of bureaucracies and, and just kind of the, the machinations of the federal government that take their cut, and then they send it back with conditions. So um, people need to realize we, we all are contribu- contributing to this. Um, and and the, the problem is state legislators are really in a box, um, knowing that each state contributes um, to the federal government um, um, there is a process that they get sent back. And as you point out, there are winners and there are losers. And, and that gets to really the kind of the 30,000-foot view, um, and that is um, the way in which we, we have set up the system where income tax dollars are sent to D.C., are rerouted back to the states with conditions. It's, it's really the way in which the federal government sets policy nationwide. And, and unfortunately, the reality is, yeah, there are winners and losers. There, there's, there's, no, there's no debating that. In the game of, of federal income taxes, there are winners and losers. But, but ultimately, what's happening is we're setting a floor on, on nationwide policy. And um, the, the Congress has, has effectively throughout the years set up a situation where no matter how competitive a state might want to be, um, and you, know, look at, you look at a state like Texas, um, very competitive in its income, state income tax structure. And, and you look at a state like California, not competitive, um, really, particularly in, in recent history, very kind of anti-competitive measures. The one big equalizer is that we have federal income taxes for individuals and corporations, and we have regulations from entities like the EPA, um, all of which kind of raise the ceiling on competitive, raise the floor, I should say, on competitiveness so that no matter how competitive a state like Texas might be from a state policy standpoint, they still have federal regulations, federal income taxes they have to comply with. And essentially, um, 
kind of raises this floor on competitiveness so that Texas and California, yeah, relatively speaking, Texas is more competitive but because we have these federal regulations, um, onerous um, corporate income tax rates. Um, there, there's really, at the end of the day, not all that much of a difference. And, and that's, that's a problem, right? If we want states to be laboratories of democracy, we need to let them actually um, implement policies that they think make them the most competitive. And, and that's ultimately kind of the problem in all this, is that we, we, we don't have um, that much of a competitive system. And, and so and it just came back to me, the second part of the question you asked earlier. So when I'm explaining this to people, I really try to emphasize the difference between competitive federalism and cooperative federalism. And so as I just alluded to, when you look at a compare a state like Texas to California, um, we want an arrangement a competitive arrangement, and that's what our founders envisioned, a competitive arrangement where that all 50 states set their policy and businesses and individuals, um, labor that's all transferable across state lines, they'll be um, attracted to, gravitate to the more competitive states. And then states that are less competitive, they will become more competitive. And I don't think it's a race to the bottom. I think you know there, there, there are going to be situations in which you know, there, there's going to be consensus on what's kind of a reasonable level of regulation, what's a reasonable level of taxation. But we first have to actually have kind of a free market system that tests that. Um, and our founders never envisioned a kind of a cooperative federalism situation. So again, I always focus on the difference between cooperative and competitive. In my mind, cooperative federalism simply means that, again, the, the, the federal government is viewing states as kind of sub-agents of the federal government. So, you know, pulling this back into beer um, and drinking uh, <laughs> age, when, when the federal government looks at an issue like that, it shouldn't be able to simply dictate that. However it's done, whether by course of measure or otherwise, it shouldn't be able to dictate that policy to states because states are distinct entities, and we, we want a competitive arrangement. And that would mean, so again, tying this back into the original topic, that might mean different states have different policies with respect to drinking age, um, and that would be a competitive arrangement. And maybe over the course of years, decades, um, there, there might be a consensus Maybe there is a consensus that 21 is the right age, but we would argue let the states decide. Let competitive federalism take hold. And, and Jake, that's, or that is very well put, and, and, and thank you for that. Um, we're about out, out of time, and uh, um, I guess uh, coming up on the next episode, assuming I didn't ruin my chances with my Packer outburst, uh, I have another colleague of yours or, or that's coming on in a future show, uh, but I definitely want to give you the last word out there. If you have anything in particular you want to really touch on or talk or, or talk about before we end here sure well well i guess three things number one thanks for having me on uh this was a great opportunity and and again we we appreciate the work that you do uh number two uh mike fisher um is my colleague and, and i believe you're going to have him on talking about the craft brewery industry um another topic we love around here lots of craft brewers in milwaukee um and frankly throughout the state of wisconsin and probably something that's a little more directly to what you speak about consistently, and that is kind of the three-tier system and the impact that has on small brewers and, 
And, and I think Mike's going to do a great job. He had a, he had a great piece in a local online outlet talking about the impact of three-tier on local craft brewers and how we just need to free up that industry and, and let the entrepreneurial spirit that, that is in that industry take over and, and don't let a kind of an antiquated three-tier system prevent that growth. Um, and then I guess just third, just my, my conclusion would be, um, you know, people need to realize that while, yeah, we've, we've, we've talked about federalism here for quite a bit, and, and that sounds like a very academic topic, it has real-life impact, and and the reason you had me on was because it related to something that you talk about all the time, and that is you know, the beverages that people like to enjoy um, and the point at which they can enjoy them. And so something that we would think should be at a minimum left to the states, if not com- completely unregulated, um, at least at, at a bottom threshold, and let's say that age is 18, um, that, that decision should be left to the states. And with something like federalism and and kind of the course of course of na- nature of the federal government that undermines that principle, it can have a very real life impact on individuals, and so that's why it's it's worth paying attention to. Excellent, thank, and Jake, thank you so much. Um, uh, how can the listener find out or read more about what you are working on, or find out more about uh, the Wisconsin in, in, or the Institute for Law and Liberty? Yep, we have a we have a great website. has links to all of our policy reports. Um, we're involved in quite a bit of strategic litigation, so folks can can read about the cases that we're taking on. Um, and that's uh, will w i l l dash or hyphen law l a w dot org. So will dash law dot org, and people can read about what we do and. And uh, we always welcome comments and feedback. All right, Jake, and that is Jake. Curtis, and thank you so much for joining the Free to Brew show here, Jake. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. And so that's going to be the end of the show. But like always, you can find us uh, more online at free or at pulseofliberty.com, or you can check it out on Stitcher and iTunes, Free to Brew show. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter at Free to Brew NC. Uh, But thank you all for joining us today. And like we always say here, without beer, there can be no liberty. And without liberty, there can be no beer. (laughs) 